let's see, Matthew chapter 5 and lesson number 30, although I believe we're finishing up lesson 29. I didn't quite finish with uh, the, the uh, Beatitude of Meekness. Let's read the Beatitudes first, and then we'll get right into our lesson. We've already had our prayer. Thank you, Terry. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That is what is known, verses 3 to 12, as what? The Beatitudes. Now in our previous lesson, and of course you can see I have no overhead transparencies, but you can look at your last lesson. We not only discussed some significant general facts about all eight of the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount in part one of that outline called the Generalities of the Beatitudes, but then we began a very specific look at the first two Beatitudes. I wanted to cover the first three, but I didn't get to the third one, but we did look at poverty of spirit in Matthew 5.3 and also mournfulness in verse 4, and that was under section 2 called the Specifics of the Beatitudes. We learned that to be on our way down the highway of happiness, we need to realize our spiritual bankruptcy apart from the Lord Jesus, and we need to have a godly, repentant type of mournfulness over our sins. And the Greek word, I don't think I mentioned that in the last lesson, the Greek word for mourn, blessed are they that mourn, is used um, literally in the strongest possible sense of the word for mourning. It, it, it really speaks of a total brokenness of self that comes to the one who sees that it was his own sins that put the gentle Jesus on that cruel cross. It's a very strong Greek word for mourn. The individual, therefore, who understands intellectually, and that's what we see primarily with the first beatitude, he, he understands intellectually his deep spiritual bankruptcy, his poverty of spirit, and his need for the Savior, and the individual who likewise has then poured himself out emotionally with sincere weeping and mourning for those, for those sins of his, will then be in a position to learn the meekness of his master. So you see the progression that we have, intellectual, emotional, and now he's ready to learn the meekness of his master. The Lord Jesus was absolutely the meekest man who ever lived. When you think of the word meek, who do you think of? You think of Jesus. Who else do you think of? There's one other, Moses. Moses was the meekest man apart from the Lord Jesus. But he was, so Jesus was the meekest man who ever lived, and yet no man had, has ever been in such absolute control. Would you agree? Totally control, sovereignly in control. So he exemplified, as he does, of course, with all of the beatific virtues, 
what spiritual meekness is all about. So we are going to be talking first of all this morning about meekness, which I have subtitled submission. And verse 5 is where we hear the Lord's words, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Although the Lord Jesus was the express image of his Father, and in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily, yet we, we learn in Philippians chapter 2 that he willingly made himself of no reputation. What did he do? He took upon himself the form of a servant. He allowed himself to put on the likeness of man. In other words, he became man, even though he was God, totally God. Though he was a king, he walked a lowly life among the children of men. He did not demand servants. Could he have? Of course, he could have demanded angels, angelic servants for that matter. He came to serve. He emptied himself. And in everything he ever did or said, self was absent. He, came, he did nothing through strife or vain glory. He looked not on his own things, but always on the things of others. He did not retaliate upon those who mocked him. He, did not, he was not vindictive with those who spat on him. He uh, re radiated power and control before the man who personified Roman authority and power, Pontius Pilate. He restored those who denied him. He prayed for those who crucified him. He was obedient to his father, even unto the cruel, shameful death on a rugged Roman cross. Not only did he reveal the meaning of meekness in his own life and in his own character, but he places meekness among some of the uh, first necessary virtues for those who will occupy his kingdom. Remember, we are talking about virtues of kingdom citizens. He is the one who said, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. He also said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. This is, that's meekness. Now, the very last thing that the man of this world would ever desire would probably be this virtue, meekness, or at least their interpretation of this virtue. To the man of the world, it is all about survival of the fittest, isn't it? Who wants to be meek? Any men, any you know, characters you turn, turn on the TV, do any of those guys want to be meek? No, it's all about the macho image, isn't it? Oh, you know, you look at the wrestling stuff and, and some of that junk that goes on. It's certainly not about meekness. The man of the world's mottos are more like, blessed are the tough, blessed are the intimidating, Blessed are the terminators. <laughs> Couldn't help but think of that one. Blessed are the aggressors. Blessed are those who sit in the executive suites because they are the ones who will inherit the earth. But the meekness about which the scripture refers is not, as the world assumes, the meekness of which scripture speaks is not weakness. Biblical meekness is not weakness. There's nothing about the word meek itself or those who exemplify the virtue in the scripture, such as Moses or Daniel or, of course, the Lord Jesus. Nothing about them that denotes any kind of spinelessness, cowardness, timidity, etc. It's not a virtue that describes a wimpy type of milquetoast person. 
an introvert, one with no backbone. Nor does it even refer to those who are, are shy or who come across as just plain, you know, nice folk. Actually, the Greek word for meek was originally, I thought this was really interesting, it was originally used to describe a horse that had been broken, you know, a horse that had been tamed, um, a wild horse that had been broken, or medicine that was soothing. And it was even used to describe wind that was gentle. And in all of those examples, what do we see? In all three of those examples, we see something strong that is under control. The horse is tamed, the medicine is soothing, the wind is gentle. In other words, meekness, and this is a good definition of biblical meekness, it describes strength under control. In the spiritual sense, it refers to the one who is strong, and yet, although he is strong, he has a teachable spirit and a willingness to submit to God when it comes to self and self-will. He's not easily provoked. He's able to deal with contention in a cool, even-tempered manner. He's able to give a soft answer to turn away wrath, as it says in Proverbs 15:1, which is one I always have to remind myself of. A soft answer turneth away wrath. 2 Timothy 2.24 tells us, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, and patient. Meekness, in the biblical context, refers to a person who is disciplined in his emotions and in his actions. Why? Because he is or she is God-controlled. Meekness is the very opposite of arrogance and pride. The meek individual has a gentle, mild spirit. The meekness of Christ, would you say, is needed in the world today? Would you say that it is needed in our homes today? Oh, absolutely, is it needed in our homes today. Meekness would provoke no arguments. It would not retort with sarcasm or angry, biting answers. Meekness would attempt to soothe those with irritated tempers. It would attempt to calm those who are anxious and worried. It would be blind to insult and deaf to reproach. That's a hard one to live up to, isn't it? We have to remember that pride and selfishness and the spirit of hatred and revenge all originated with whom? Those things originated with Satan. And as was true with him, these things only bring evil to those who cherish them. So, you know, it's really for our own good to get rid of these things and to try to work on being more and more meek. The meekness that is the fruit of abiding in the Lord Jesus is the secret of true blessedness. I was studying this this week, and I was really, really working on it. I mean, when you're in a house with two big dogs that are everywhere and three children that have never really been disciplined, non-Christian, pretty wild, 
this is this was a test to, to really testing my meekness here <laughs> to just be meek and quiet and gentle the psalm 149 4 says he will beautify the meek with salvation now on the other hand when it comes to issues of faith however when it comes to issues of faith and when it comes to matters of sound biblical doctrine and to things concerning the Lord God Almighty and his holiness, then the meek, is, the meek person stands firm. You know, it's not, not a matter of weakness when it comes to issues of faith in God and God's holiness. The Lord Jesus may have been the Lamb of God, but he also, when it was needful, on occasion, showed forth some of the lion in him, which he will one day reveal to the whole world. He was never, ever intimidated. You couldn't say he was meek when he was confronting the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious rulers of his day. He rebuked them openly for their heartlessness and their willful, willful pride. And on two occasions, he made a whip, and he single-handedly cleansed the temple of hundreds of, of corrupt and greedy men. He feared no man. What did he call Herod Antipas? who had the power, supposedly, to behead him like he did John the Baptist. What did he call him? He referred to him as that old, that fox. And he stood firm, as I've already mentioned one time this morning, he stood firm as a prisoner before Pontius Pilate until it was obvious that Pilate was really the prisoner. Pilate was the one who was squirming. The meek Lord Jesus defeated even the most non-meek creature in existence, who is, again, Satan. He crushed his strongest and his most clever foe, Satan. So what does that tell you about meekness not being weakness? It is definitely strength under control. So to get the clearest picture of the beatific virtue of meekness, what we do is we put together all that we see in the Lord Jesus, who was meekness personified. And when we do, we discover that the one who is meek is going to be submit, to have a submissive, gentle spirit because he looks to God. He trusts in God. Yet he also, or she also, possesses tremendous strength of character and conviction and self-control. The spirit of meekness, then, is the spirit of Christ. It restrains a person from revenge for a personal insult, but... You know, if, you, if we're personally insulted, we should be meek and gentle and not let it offend us and don't try to retaliate, no vengeance. That's, but we will not yield on a principle of righteousness or on a dishonoring of God and his holiness. In other words, meekness will not compromise with evil. He will never be a loser. The meek person the genuinely biblical meek person, the person who has the, the meekness of Christ, will never be a, a loser regardless of the what the world might think because in the end, what are we told? He is the one or she is the one or they are the ones who will with the Lord inherit the earth when he comes back and sets up his, his millennial kingdom. It's interesting to find that the, this third beatitude is taken directly from the Old Testament. If you want to flip over for a minute and look at Psalm 37, if you look at Psalm 37, 
verse 11. You should have known this. Everything. Actually, all the Beatitudes come from the Old Testament. Jesus, Jesus doesn't, isn't really saying anything new, um, new here. I mean, well, of course, he wrote the Old Testament, but this is thing, these are things and virtues that the religious, the religious rulers and the people should have already known. In Psalm ver, uh, 37, verse 11, we read, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Actually, in this Psalm, verses 1 to 8, we actually learn a lot about uh, a de the definition of a meek person. It tells us that they don't fret themselves because of evildoers. This is in verse 1. They don't fret themselves because of evildoers, nor are they envious of them. They trust in the Lord, verse 2. They do good, verse 2. They delight themselves in the Lord, verse 4. They commit their ways to him, verse 5. They rest in him and wait patiently upon him, verse 7 and they cease from anger and forsake wrath, verse 8. These are the meek, and they receive, they are the ones who receive God's divine smile of approval, his blessedness. James Montgomery Boyce, in his uh, commentary, says this, quote, they also possess the earth because they take what God spreads before them and enjoy it, while others fight for more and fail to enjoy even what they have. Boy, how true that is. There is, of course, no one other than the Lord Jesus. I'm sure many of you are feeling as frustrated as I am about <laughs> being this meek in our lives, but there's no one other than the Lord Jesus who can perfectly manifest meekness in his life, perfectly. No one can ever, this side of, of heavenly glorification, totally escape self and pride. <clears throat> However, there are some ways that we can test ourselves and see how well we are doing in the area of meekness. We can ask ourselves some of the following questions. Now, are you ready? <laughs> told you this was going to be a painful process. Is it important that you always get your way? Do your preferences and your opinions take precedence over those of others? Is your way and your will the driving force of your life? And this could be so subtle. You know, you might say, ah, oh, no, 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 it isn't. But boy, when you really get down to thinking about it, a lot of times it is. Do you really care how your actions affect others? Do you treat other people harshly? How well do you handle inconvenient disruptions to your schedule? <laughs> At least she's honest. <laughs> How do you deal with incompetent people? Mm. My husband doesn't do too well with this. <laughs> How do you handle traffic jams and unforeseen delays? What about long lines? In, <laughs> it's a good, a good one to recite when you're standing in line at Walmart, right? <laughs> How do you do in the grocery store when it's finally your turn and the the tape, the, you know, the tape runs out, or, <laughs> or they change, yeah, change the shift. Or, out in Seattle, where we were, just were, uh, you have to take a ferry. But how many of you have ever been to Seattle? 
know, every everything is on the water, so wherever you want to go, you've got to be patient and live in Seattle because you've got to wait in line to take the ferry boat here and there and everywhere. We were on a lot of ferry boats and in a lot of lines. And one time we waited, I think, about two hours to get across to the other side, just in line to get on the ferry boat. How well do you do in those kind of situations? Um, how about when you have waited a while to get your food in a restaurant and it comes and it's wrong? <laughs> are you kind and are you patient? How about with coworkers? Are you kind and patient, even with those who are incompetent or less skilled than you? How do you how do you treat the elderly? How about children? How do you do with your spouse? How about your mother-in-law? <laughs> are you known to be someone others never care to upset? <laughs> are you known for gentleness or for having a quick temper? Do you seek revenge on those who mistreat you? Are you not content until you get your pound of flesh? Is there rage in your soul? Are there people in your life you despise and explode whenever you are with them? Of course, you can make up some of your own questions to add to this, but this gives you a little bit of an idea, maybe how you're doing in the meekness area. If you have the attitude that some of these things are just quote unquote part of your personality and people better get used to it because that's just who you are, take it or leave it. <laughs> and if you're not convicted and repentant about them, then there could very well be a good chance that you are not a kingdom citizen. I mean, if that is your attitude, take it or leave it, that's the way I am. You know, you need to examine yourself, make sure you really are a kingdom citizen because every true kingdom citizen is going to have a degree of meekness. And it's gonna grow, it should grow. If you're growing, it should grow and develop with your spiritual matur maturity. According to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the person who is truly meek will be totally amazed that God and man can think of him or her as anything, much less as well as they do. The true test of our meekness is not whether we can admit our own sinfulness. The true test of our meekness is how we respond if and when others tell us our weaknesses and what rotten, no good sinners we are. How do we respond to that? <clears throat> It says in 1 Peter 3, 4, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. He puts a great price on the virtue of meekness. So let's work on it together. All right, let's look at the next beatitude, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Verse 6, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled. In the first three beatitudes, poverty of spirit, mournfulness, and meekness, Jesus taught that the one who is truly blessed of God is the one who puts aside three things. The one who puts aside or takes off three things, self, which is what we see really in poverty of spirit, sin, which is what we see in mournfulness over that sin, and self-reliance, which is uh, meekness. The result of putting away or putting off those things is that room, space, will then be made available within 
that individual to desire the righteousness of God. The spiritual principle at work is that the one who puts aside the things he has, you know, self, sin, and self-reliance, the more he puts aside those things and empties himself of those things, then the more he's going to desire the things that God has, the righteousness of God. So in logical, sequential order, the hunger, thirst, beatitude perfectly follows the previous three because it makes a statement of blessedness to which the other three have been leading us. It is the sensible conclusion at which the first three Beatitudes have arrived. There really is no better test. We've been talking about how we can test ourselves. There's no better test that a person can give herself, himself, with regard to the matter of uh, a Christ, his Christian profession, you know, the reality of your salvation, than to examine ourselves in light of Matthew 5, 6. Give yourself the Matthew 5, 6 test. Ask yourself if you are truly hungry for the things of God. Do you deeply thirst to know him better and to be as righteous in your walk or practically as you are positionally in Christ? Is Matthew 5, 6 a verse that describes your own inner desire? Is it one you find wonderfully rewarding in that which is it promises. What does it promise? That you will be filled. You will be satisfied. So if, if this really does describe you, that you are one who hungers and thirsts after the righteousness of God and the things of God, then you probably do not need to question the reality of your salvation. The first three sermon beatitudes convict the individual to examine himself or herself introspectively in order to realize some rather painful negative truths about his own sinful nature, which needs to be changed, of course, by the grace and power of God, the Holy Spirit. And that was poverty of spirit, mournfulness, and meekness. Those are introspective uh, things that are kind of negative. You know, we see we are spiritually bankrupt, then we we mourn over our condition and, um, and meekness, you know, we, we give up self-reliance. And those are negative things, but they lead us to this fourth beatitude, which uh, is a more, gives us a more positive aspect to our spiritual maturity. And that, of course, is hungering and thirsting for the, righteousness thing, the righteous things of God. Don't you see how that's positive? Now we're doing, we've got rid of the negatives and now we're going in a positive direction. It is positive in the respect that it involves a positive desire on man's part. He must hunger and thirst, which implies a deep, driving pursuit of something. In this case, that something is what? God's righteousness, the righteousness of God. A person simply can't have a more positive drive. There isn't one, <laughs> I don't think. You cannot have a more positive try, a drive than for God's righteousness and for God's holiness, for God's goodness. Jesus was saying that it's not enough just to acknowledge and grieve over your sins, your past sins. It's also important to, to be purposed in your heart to honor and to obey and to glorify God by partaking in his righteousness or of his righteousness. What is righteousness? In a nutshell, righteousness is holiness. 
The one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness desires a likeness to God, and God is holy. And the righteousness of God is embodied in the person of his son. Of course, we receive positional righteousness, the positional righteousness of the Lord Jesus, the moment we are saved. Positionally, we receive his righteousness, and that's absolutely free. It's often called imputed righteousness, if you want to look up Romans 1.17. But the righteousness of which the Lord Jesus is speaking in this particular beatitude here is practical righteousness. Now, we're talking about kingdom citizens, so they're, they don't have to go out and obtain positional righteousness in Christ. They already have it. They received it the moment they were saved. So he is referring here to practical righteousness. It's an inner righteousness that works itself out through yielding to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in the process of sanctification. And that's an ongoing process. It's a lifelong process. Sanctification is becoming more and more holy, more and more set apart, more and more Christ-like. As the believer lives in conformity to God's will, he lives more and more righteously. His life becomes more and more holy. And if it isn't, then you're not growing as you should be spiritually. He will also hunger and thirst for righteousness to prevail in others, not in just himself, but he'll have a hunger and thirst to see God's holiness and God's righteousness um, prevailing in other people around him, his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, and even in the world. But where does it begin? It needs to begin with his own life. King David longed for the day that he would have the holy righteousness of God. He displayed the kind of hungering for righteousness that Matthew 5, 6 is speaking about. And he displayed this desire of his in a number of the Psalms that he wrote. For example, in Psalm 42, 1, he wrote, as the heart, or the H-A-R-T, not the heart, but the deer, as the deer panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Does that describe your desire for God and for his righteousness and for his word? In Psalm 63, 1, he said, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul, my soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. The fourth beatific virtue is that of having a starving spirit and a parched soul, like David, that crave after the righteousness of God. Notice that Jesus did not say in this beatitude, blessed are the righteous. He didn't say that, did he? Because as it is written, there is no, none righteous, no, not one. He said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's interesting that the verbs hunger and thirst are not given in the, the usual Greek genitive case, which would indicate a, fee, you know, a feeling of a bit of hunger for something to munch on, like I had in the plane. You know, they don't feed you anymore in planes. 
little bit of pretzel, a little tiny bag of pretzels is it, for the, a flight from Seattle all the way to uh, Atlanta, pretzels. And I was starving. Well, according to this word, I had a little bit of hunger. <laughs> That's what the usual word for hunger in the Bible is speaking of, a bit of hunger for something to munch on, or thirsting, you know, like we thirst. We say we're dying of thirst, but I don't think probably any of us have really been dying for thirst. We just want a cup of something, you know, a cup of water or juice to, to quench our, our little bit of thirst. But what these verbs are really speaking of, and they're given in the accusative case, which is very unusual, the commentators point out. They say this is very unusual. This means that they don't speak of a hunger and thirst for tidbits of satisfaction, but for the whole table spread. Like Thanksgiving Day, my brother-in-law does everything big time. We had a baked, honey-baked ham, three turkeys, um, one was smoked, one was baked the regular way. We had fish. We, I mean, we had so much food. This word is speaking of the whole thing. I want to eat everything on the table. <laughs> but that... <laughs> we had sushi. We had raw, we had raw sole. We had raw tuna. Ooh. I did eat it. You'd be proud of me. I ate it all. No, I mean, I tasted little bits of it. <laughs> and I'm not a sushi eater. But so anyway, this word is uh, its saying it's not enough for kingdom citizens to be declared righteous, positionally. Right? The, the one who is hungry and thirsting, he's not satisfied with just being declared righteous. And that's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, but that satisfies a lot of people. Okay, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. That's it. I know I'm all right. But the one who hungers and thirsts is not satisfied with just practical, uh, positional righteousness. He... Um, he wants, he pants, he wants to become more and more righteous practically, you know, in his daily walk. And this is really the way it should be for a healthy, spiritually growing believer. He should always be hungry for more and more of God's holiness in his life. And how do we obtain that? By being hungry more and more for the manna from heaven, God's word. As R. Kent Hughes states in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he says the words of Matthew 5, 6 make no sense to non-kingdom citizens. In fact, they are even too much, listen to this, they are even too much for many professing Christians because they do not allow for lukewarm, half-hearted religion. In other words, even many Christians reading this say this is going too far, this is too much. Even within many evangelical churches, the individual who pants after holiness is considered to have taken things a bit too far. To be, I have heard this from people within the church. Or you just get carried away with this. You're just taking it too far. I mean, you know, everything in moderation. Mr. Hughes writes this. He says, quote, for some... Jesus' pronouncement may uncover buried, almost forgotten glimmers of past life when you first came to Christ and perpetually hungered and thirsted for righteousness. You couldn't get enough of Jesus or his word. You were joyously desperate for the things of God. You also cared about the world and its spiritual famine. You welcomed opportunities for self-sacrifice and were willing to go for it. 
But time blunted your desires. The realities of life took over, and that delectable hunger ceased. Now you are content with a life of lesser, limited devotion. If so, you should heed his call, because you can be restored to what you were meant to be. You must never be spiritually satisfied. You must pray that each decade of your life will find you more thirsty for a life pleasing to God. Amen. That's a good prayer. Lord, may each decade of my life see me getting increasingly thirsty for, the hol for your holiness and to be more and more like you. What is the world hunger for? The world hungers for a lot of things. It thirsts for a lot of things. Sex being one of them. Sports. Power. Prestige. Wealth. Fame. Entertainment. Violence. They even thirst and, uh, for violence. Just to name a few. Satan, who of course is the prince of this world, what does he hunger for? Power. He hungers for power. Isaiah 14, verses 13 to 15, speaks of a terribly fateful moment in, in uh, heavenly history when Satan, who was then, of course, named Lucifer, determined that it was not just enough for him to reflect God's glory. He pridefully determined to usurp God's power and to try to rob God of his glory. So his hunger was for power. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon hungered for something. He hungered for praise. Um, and the rich but foolish farmer who decided to build bigger and better barns for his crops, he hungered for pleasure. So we have hunger for power, hunger for praise, hunger for pleasure. In each of those biblical examples of sinful hunger, those involved had, no, had the wrong idea about the things that would bring true happiness, true blessedness. And they each uh, rejected God's good thing, which is his righteousness, his holiness. Consequently, each of them lost. Although I do have good news to share with you. Nebuchadnezzar finally got straightened out in the end. He did, he did acknowledge the Lord as the, the one high God. I, I do believe that Nebuchadnezzar was saved and we will see him in heaven and boy that isn't grace but uh, not only did they not receive like Satan did not receive the power or the, the the praise or the pleasure for which they were hungering but neither did they receive God's righteousness except for Nebuchadnezzar but of course as true as with most most people what they're hungering for if it's not the good things they not only do not get those good things they might get them temporarily but in the long run, they don't get them. But then they don't get what really is good, and that is God's righteousness. And without God's righteousness imputed to the sinner, and all of us are sinners, no man can receive eternal life. So he is therefore consigned to an eternity of separation apart from God, of course, eventually in the lake of fire. As the starving, weary traveler desires food, or as the man dying of thirst craves for a spring in the desert, the believer, the kingdom citizen, is to yearn for God's righteousness of which Christ is the source. Christ is the bread from heaven, isn't he? He is the manna from heaven. 
and he is the, the source of the fountain of living water. It is a, this is, we're speaking here of a spirit-produced desire. Without being born again, you cannot hunger and thirst for the, for the righteousness of God. It has to be a spirit-produced desire within you. And that is the desire which will keep you spiritually strong. If we as believers in the Lord Jesus would purpose in our minds to make the pursuit of righteousness and not the pursuit of happiness, the number one goal and the number one priority in our life, we would, I can promise you this, we would truly, truly discover satisfaction. Make the priority of your life the pursuit of righteousness, not the pursuit of happiness. And you will discover satisfaction. And this is definitely not what the world would teach you. It's definitely not what the world advertises, promotes, or supports. But it works. It honestly works. The fourth sermon beatitude is wisdom straight from the lips of none other than God himself. Words from God's lips to man's ears, but very few people ever, ever bother to listen to it. And therefore, even fewer and, and even fewer ever apply it to their lives. I mean, we're hearing it. Everybody in this room is hearing it, but I wonder how many of us will truly apply it to our lives. The key to happiness is holiness. The highway to happiness is down the road of holiness or righteousness. Therefore, the key to happiness is being in Christ and hungering and thirsting to be like Christ. Do you want to really be happy? you really want the happiness that lasts and endures throughout the rest of your life, no matter what kind of circumstances are happening to you, around you, in you, through you, the true key to happiness is holiness. It's that simple. The reward for the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, righteousness is not only the rich contentment that he receives as a result of being in God's will, and in God's favor because he is approved or blessed by God, but also the perpetual satisfaction that is given him by God. You see, man's part is to seek. God's part is to satisfy. We are to seek. He will satisfy. What does it say in Matthew 6, 33? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Our part is to seek. His part is to satisfy. Now, this again is one of the Lord's paradox truths. You know, it seems to be a truth which stands on it, its head. How can one who is continually hungry and thirsty be satisfied at the same time? Or we could ask the reverse question. How can one who is satisfied still experience hunger and thirst? That does seem to contradict itself, doesn't it? How could he, in other words, be empty and yet full, or full and yet empty? Well, the best way to answer this is by simply a comparison to the physical world. I'm hungry in the morning for a little bit of something to eat, aren't you? I mean, not sometimes. First thing, I have to have my coffee. But then in a little while, <laughs> once my eyes open up a little bit, I, I get a little hunger for some breakfast, and then after I eat that little something, lately it's been a styrofoam, 
<clears throat> because I'm trying to lose a little weight. Well, I have to go back to the styrofoam after this Thanksgiving, but you know what I'm speaking of when I say styrofoam? Rice cakes, yes. <laughs> but after I eat my rice cake, then I'm satisfied. I'm, I'm filled. However, around 12, 1 o'clock, middle of the day, I begin to feel a little hunger again. So I go and eat some lunch, and then I'm filled again. This hungering and thirsting beatitude describes what we could call a hunger-thirst spiritual cycle. As we conform to God's will and to his standards of righteousness, we will find contentment. But it will carry us to a new level where we again become aware of other shortcomings in our lives and we hunger and thirst for ever greater righteousness and an even closer walk with, with Christ and this this is called the spiritual cycle, the hunger-thirst cycle. Apostle Paul understood all of this. He understood this um, spiritual cycle, we could call it. He knew probably the Lord Jesus more intimately than any man of his time. But that intimate, sa uh, intimate satisfaction just made him hunger and thirst to know him even better. That's why he uh, wrote of his deep longing to know. He said, oh, that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and to be like him even in his death, Paul wrote, Philippians 3.10. One day, however, the Lord promises, what does he say? For they shall be filled. One day we shall be fully and eternally satisfied when our positional and our practical righteousness blend together in perfect harmony. Then we will be, of course, in our glorified state, and we will no longer possess the sin nature. We will eat and drink with Christ in his kingdom, and we will be satisfied. Amen. God's filling of those who truly seek him is a frequently recurring theme that is found again in the Psalms. Consider just a few of the uh, following verses that I'll read to you, and, and some of them are in the Psalms and some of them are elsewhere. But this speaks of this thirsting and this longing and this hungering to know God better. One of them that you all know is, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. My cup runneth over. And then there's Psalm 107.9, For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Psalm 34.10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. And then Jesus himself said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And in John 4.14, and the woman at the well, he said, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up, into everlasting life. Of course, that, some of those there are speaking of positional righteousness as opposed to practical righteousness. Okay, let's move real quickly. I might only have time for mercy and not get to purity of heart, but let's uh, look at verse 7. The beatitude of mercy or subtitled sympathy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The first four beatitudes now that we have covered in verses 3 to 6 deal more with inner principles of man's heart and soul, his attitudes. They deal primarily 
with man's relationship vertically to God. Now, the last four Beatitudes, which we begin with this one, mercy, are essentially outward manifestations of the first four attitudes. With Matthew 5, 7, the fifth Beatitude, which concerns the virtue of mercy, we come to the second group of four Beatitudes. Remember I said they were divided in two groups of four? We've covered the first four, now we come to the second four. And the second four Beatitudes are concerned more with man's relationship horizontally with his fellow man. So I want to look briefly at how the last four Beatitudes are outward manifestations toward others of the first four uh, attitudes inner attitudes toward God. I wish I had a transparency because, boy, this would make it a lot more simple, but hang on and see if you can get this. Those who are poor in spirit, now that's the first beatitude of the first four, right? All right. Those who are poor in spirit will have seen their own desperate need for mercy and having received it so graciously from God, they will then be more merciful toward others, which is the first beatitude of the second four. Those who mourn, and that's the second beatitude of the first four, those who mourn and deeply sorrow over their sin will come to hate their sins so much that they will strive to be, what? Pure in heart, which is the corresponding second beatitude of the second group. Those who are meek, that's the third beatitude of the first group, will be those who will strive to write, to be peacemakers, make peace with their fellow man. Those who hunger and thirst after God's righteousness, which is the fourth beatitude of the fourth group, first group, will be therefore quite willing to pay the price of persecution for righteousness sake. You see, they hunger and thirst for righteousness sake and they will be willing to be persecuted for righteousness sake, which is the corresponding fourth beatitude of the second four. So we can see the beautiful, divinely inspired sequential flow of these eight beatitudes. They were they were given in a, a brilliantly logical progression, which of course God himself only could have designed. Now one thing to realize with regard to the subject of uh, mercy Is that what I'm on? Yeah, I'm on number seven, mercy. Is that mercy toward men does not always result in mercy from men. You can be merciful to someone, and does that guarantee that they are in turn going to be merciful to you? No, not hardly. However, mercy toward men does result in mercy from from God. If we are merciful to others, God will be merciful to us, whether or not those to whom we have demonstrated mercy reciprocate that mercy. Some do, some don't. What exactly is mercy? Well, the basic meaning of the Greek word for mercy is to give help to those who are in need. Mercy is a matter of assisting the helpless. It is compassion manifested in action. Mercy, as the Lord Jesus used it, involves more than just a feeling of sympathy or, or compassion or pity for another person. I mean, a lot of, lot of people can have pity and compassion and, and feel merciful towards someone, but the way the Lord Jesus is using it here involves putting that feeling of sympathy or that feeling of compassion into action. 
in order to alleviate the mercy of the one with whom we are sympathizing. Mercy refers to that disposition which longs and desires to take upon itself the burdens of others and do whatever is possible to alleviate their misery. Yet above that, mercy in its purest form puts the needful situation of another even above his own needs. So in its purest form, mercy puts others' needs above its own. Do you know the best way to forget about your own problems? I've used this so many times with people. Help somebody else. The best way to ever, to ever get over your own pity party is to involve yourself in the problems and in the heartaches of others. And are there plenty of heartaches and problems out there? Mm, everywhere. And sometimes this will even help you to appreciate your own problems. You'll be thankful you have the problems you have instead of the ones that somebody else has. They often seem smaller when you compare them to some of the heartaches other people have. Also, having troubles of our own, which we all do, help us. You know, when we go through trials and valleys and have heartaches of our own, that, that is ultimately a good thing because it helps us to be able to empathize with others who are going through similar things. It, it will help us to be more compassionate. If I never had any troubles, you know, I'd say, oh, I'm so sorry. But I wouldn't be able to understand. I wouldn't be able to really, really understand what you're going through. Um, Proverbs 11:17 states that the one who shows mercy doeth good to his own soul. So when you are merciful to others, you're really benefiting your own soul as well. Mercy is exactly what God demonstrated to us. He took upon himself our burden of sin because he put our needs above his own needs. He did all that he could for us. What did he do? He gave his own life. He gave his very life to alleviate our misery and our guilt and the inevitable penalty of sin that we would have had to pay uh, apart from what he did for us. And, of course, that penalty is death, the second death, eternal separation from God. Had God merely felt sorry for us in our sinful condition, his sorrow and his pity and his compassion would have done us absolutely no good at all, would it? If he just felt sorry for us, we would still die in our sin and still be separated from the light of his holy presence throughout all of eternity. But God did do something about his compassion and his sympathy for us. It was according to his abundant mercy that he sent his son to die for us. It says in 1 Peter 1, 3, his abundant mercy. Aren't you glad for his abundant mercy? Again, the Lord's words regarding mercy in verse 7 <clears throat> presented a totally new concept. It shouldn't have because, again, it's in the Old Testament, but people... You know, they forgot what was in the Old Testament in there. And certainly their religious rulers weren't teaching them mercy, were they? This was a new concept to the world of Christ's day. It wasn't considered, mercy was not considered a virtuous quality in first century culture. Throughout the Gospels, the mercilessness of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees is seen over and over again. They had no mercy toward the people, none whatsoever. And we know from historical records that the Romans even considered mercy a sign of weakness. You know, they, they did. One Roman philosopher even referred to it as the disease of the human soul. 
So if you were merciful, you had a disease. There was something wrong with you, according to the Romans. So into this bleak, insensitive world of the first century came one who is mercy incarnate. Christ not only taught men with his words to be merciful, but he demonstrated by his works how to be merciful. Everywhere he went throughout his earthly ministry, what do we see him doing? Pouring out mercy on people, on those in need, whether their needs were physical or, or uh, spiritual or emotional, mental, social, whatever. He was constantly pouring out mercy. And the ultimate act of his mercy was the cross. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Now, the world would have us believe the lie, blessed are those who are free of others' troubles and can attend to their own troubles. But the Lord Jesus came along and said, in effect, blessed are they who not only attend to their own troubles, but who also take unto themselves the burdens of others. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He taught that the way of happiness, the road of happiness, the highway to happiness is the way of helping others in their times of distress, just as the Good Samaritan. Remember, the Good Samaritan was a picture of Christ himself. The Good Samaritan in Luke 10 demonstrated mercy by assisting that helpless man who had been robbed and beaten on the road to Jericho. Abraham had been very much wronged by his nephew Lot. And yet he was merciful in risking his own life to battle five kings in order to go in and rescue Lot and his family. Joseph had been terribly mistreated by his own brothers, and yet he demonstrated mercy when he supplied them not only with food so that they wouldn't starve to death, but when he mercifully forgave them unconditionally forgave them and understood that God was the one who had orchestrated the whole thing. King Saul had treated David like a common criminal. You know, he had, he had scourged the whole countryside looking for him so he could kill him. And yet when David had a perfect opportunity for vengeance on Saul, what did he demonstrate instead? Mercy. Mercy is a fruit of of the love that God himself sheds abroad in the heart of his children. We all should be merciful. The reward of the mercy beatitude is found in the last part of verse 7 where it says of those who are merciful that they shall obtain mercy themselves. Now this does not mean, make sure you understand this, this does not mean as some have erroneously taught, this does not mean that by one's acts of mercy he can make or she can make satisfaction to God for his sins and therefore receive God's salvational mercy. In other words, this isn't saying that if you are merciful, you will receive God's mercy and be saved, although it has been taken that way and taught that way. But that is not what it's saying. That if it was taken and taught that way, it would make Christ's death of no effect because it would claim that man can work his way into God's presence by his meritorious deeds of mercy. Such teaching totally contradicts the scripture. Rather, in saying that the merciful shall obtain mercy, Jesus is presenting a truth which we could call God's mercy cycle. 
We had another cycle a little while ago. Here's another one. God's mercy cycle. It is God's mercy and grace, of course, which enables a person to be born again in the first place, right? It's his grace, it's his mercy by which we are saved to begin with. It is then the indwelling power of God, the Holy Spirit, that makes it possible for the believer to genuinely demonstrate mercy to others. As he is yielded and obedient to the Spirit's guidance by showing mercy to his fellow man, then God gives him even more mercy. And the cycle repeats itself throughout the believer's life. With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. Psalm 18.25. It is one of the fundamental principles of God's governing ways that a man will reap what he sows. That's what it's really saying here. That's the underlying principle. If you are merciful, you will obtain mercy. You will reap what you sow. He who sows mercy will reap mercy. Proverbs 21.21. He that followeth after righteousness and mercy findeth life, righteousness, and honor. So we have a lot of homework this week, don't we? I mean, other than your real homework, we have a lot of homework to think about, meditate on. I did not get to the the next one. I wanted to cover purity of heart, but uh, go ahead and answer all your questions anyway because you can figure out the few that deal with purity of heart. And we'll try to cover the last three next week, and maybe I'll be more awake and we'll, we'll actually get them done. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you so much for these women and their hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I pray, Lord, that they will be satisfied. Help them to be faithful, to study your word. Lord, and also I would ask that each of us would really do a a job of introspection this week and that we would examine ourselves to make sure that we are poor in spirit, that we do have mourned over our sinful condition that we are meek in the, in the way that you interpret meekness, strength under control, and that we do have this hunger and thirst after practical righteousness, to become more and more conformed, conformed to the son, image of your Son, and that we're not just content to have obtained the righteousness imputed to us at salvation, but that we want to truly be more like him and to grow it, uh, spiritually, and that we might even pray that each decade of our lives would see us more and more hungry and thirsty for the things of you and the holiness that you can give to us and make us to be merciful lord i know you did already you've given us a degree of mercy but may we learn and yield to the spirit and and just show more and more mercy toward others because there are so many out there who do need our mercy Lord, we love you, and I just pray that you'd go with each woman, keep her safe this week, and help her to be a light shining for you to those who she has influence with, and uh, bring us all back here safely next week, for we pray in your name, Jesus, for your sake, amen.